0: Almighty God, you who inspired the scriptures from the beginning to the end and sent your Holy Spirit to illumine our hearts, we pray, Lord, that your Holy Spirit come like living waters, like cooling streams, Lord, and like the wind that blows into our hearts, Lord, dust off the dustiness in our homes. And may your Spirit reside in us to speak to us and grant us illumination and understanding. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts, O Lord, be acceptable to you, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. I want to thank Jared for that wonderful uh, energetic reading. Uh, It's always lovely to hear that word being declared out uh, so clearly, uh, and and it warms my heart. I don't know what it does for you. need to encourage them uh, where they do well. Today, we're going to cover a passage from Second Samuel. I, I realize that the clock has died. And, and because the clock has died, I don't know how much time I'm going to take. <laughs> so if somebody starts uh, looking at their watch very clearly, then I might know. But it's interesting, I, I've uh, chosen this passage from the Old Testament, and in particular, a, a very, what you might call, a very central, seminal passage that is very crucial for the jewish nation and also about the the whole concept and idea of the messiah Uh, this is one where it is uh, first being put in but before i i even touch that particular topic i i just want to help you try and place something in 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 your mind and so my question for you is uh, maybe you might want to speak to the person next to you when you were in school When you were in school, I know some of you, it's like, not that long ago. (laughs) Which house were you in the school? I think most of you would understand what that means, okay? Which house were you or which colour were you? Maybe you just remember the colour, you don't remember the house. Okay, ready? At the count of three, turn to the person next to you and uh, tell them. Ready? One, two, three. I noticed some people shaking their heads, Or at that time, uh, there were no schoolhouses. I'm not sure whether that's the case or they're saying there was no school. (laughs) Okay, I I actually, during various periods in my life, uh, went through many schools, but at one point I was in the LaSalle Brothers schools. And the LaSalle Brothers, uh, in my particular school, had this uh, Anthony, Gaston, Raphael, and Casimir. Imagine a bunch of Malay, Indian, Chinese kids coming together and they say, Hey, Lu what's apa?" Anthony. Call <laughs> uh, uh, So we always just remembered it as a colour. It's only much later in, I, in life that I realised that uh, when you called yourself uh, from the house of Anthony or Antonian, uh, it was actually one of the founding brothers, uh, the La brothers who were instrumental in setting up the school. And so, These were names of the brothers, and we were under their houses for us to remember that this work initially started through them. Our children also understand this. I know my my boy and my girl, Timothy and Allie, they are in Methodist Boy School and Methodist Girl School, so they have their house colours. And even children who are not in there, when they watch uh, Harry Potter or anything like Gryffindor or Slytherin, all these houses... And so this concept of house is common. I don't know how many of you look at yourself and say, I am house of Koo," or house of Yap. Uh, that, that's the similar concept. In, in the UK, we have the house of Windsor, uh, Windsor, the, the royal family. And so this concept of house is not just about a physical building, but also your lineage, your family, your history, your legacy. And in this particular chapter, in 2 Samuel chapter 7, God is about to speak to David, and David initiates the conversation about this house. So, in 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 1 to 17, it begins in verse 1 by saying, After the king was settled in his palace, and the Lord had given him rest from all his enemies around him, he said to Nathan the prophet, here I am living in a house of cedar, while the Ark of God remains in a tent. Now, uh, some of you uh, need to actually have a little bit of an understanding of what has happened before this, and it's lovely reading. I, I, I commend it to you. Go back and read this. I'll, I'll give you a short summary, but please don't take it that you 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 know now that pastor has given you the summary, tapayab. No, go back and read it. It's really wonderful. If you read 2 Samuel chapter 6, you will trace the movement of the Ark of the Covenant, the tabernacle. So, in short, maybe in hopefully in, in about a minute or so, what has happened is that the Ark has always been the symbol of God's presence in the midst of Israel. But throughout the reign of Saul, the king who was just before David, Saul lost the ark. Very, very shameful thing. Very, very, uh, you know, you don't know where to put your face. The gods that protect you have been hijacked by your enemy and placed into a different territory. And so, just to give you that idea, Saul had lost the ark And the ark was in this place called uh, Kiriath Jerim, or uh, Baalath in Judah is the other name. So in in 2 Samuel chapter 6, these names are given. So the ark has been left in a place, and if you recall that story, uh, they were celebrating over the fact that they had captured the ark of the Israelites. But somehow or other, the ark afflicted them so much so that they had to abandon the place and even their idols uh, crashed to the ground and was almost destroyed. Now, what has happened after that is a period of time has passed. Saul has now been uh, lost. He loses his life in the process. And David has finally defeated the Philistines and captured back the land. He wants to bring back the ark And the first time he does this, he sends 30,000 people and he puts the ark on a bullock cart. And the bullock cart goes along and somebody basically does something wrong. You see, the bullock cart reaches a threshing floor. It stumbles and this guy called Uzzah, Uzzah who's a Levite who's at the back of the ark, he reaches out because the ark is about to fall and he says, yo, you know, you can imagine if you're there, yeah, 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 he's going to fall down and he quickly reached down and he touched it and it got zapped. He died immediately at which all the 30,000 of them put on their emergency brakes and stopped. (laughs) Cannot proceed from there and David was very angry. He was upset. In a a way, you read it, he sulked with God. He's like, How am I going to get the ark back? And you might think, you know, poor Uzzah, he's just trying to do something nice, but he gets that. But you see, central to this is that David wants to recover the God of his people. And in doing so, it would basically cement his call or his title to the kingship. Because when the king has got his deity with him, he is now truly cemented in his power, symbolic power. But the way he was doing it is, you know, send my army, just go and collect it, put it on a bullock cart. And the reason why it was wrong was because God had already given very clear instructions during Exodus and Leviticus how the ark was to be handled with great care, with great attention to detail, not simply throw it into the back of a bullock cart and jalan. He was supposed to have all these Levites who were carrying it by hand. He was supposed to basically have a procession of people, particularly the Levites, who were supposed to attend to this. And so, after a period of time, people whispered in his ear. You see, what had happened was the ark. They, they after Uzzah died they kind of like said we can't proceed anymore don't know if God breaks out against the rest of us because he's angry all these 30,000 will be wiped out and so they took it to this place called Obed-Edom the house of Obed-Edom and Obed-Edom somehow for the three months when the ark was there Obed-Edom prospered good man he was taking care of it and he prospered, and people whispered in David's ear, I Obad Edom doing very well. <laughs> because the ark is there, you better bring it back. <laughs> and so he tried again. David tried again and he said, This time around, I will try and do this properly. So he checked the scriptures and all that. And the Levites went and they carried it by hand. But not only that, the king led the procession, and he was dancing in a linen ephod. Now, you might think, what kind of linen ephod is this? Uh, again, huh, I'm not going to tell you the whole story. Go read it. It's really interesting. It's very spicy. It was almost scandalous. Because they said David is dancing like a half-naked guy in front of all these servant maids, and they're all swooning at him. But but David leads in the worship And every six steps, if I'm not mistaken, every six steps, they will stop, they will sacrifice a bull. My goodness, many bulls died. Every six steps, worship, sacrifice, walk some more, worship, sacrifice. And finally he arrives in the city and they put the ark in a tent. They put the ark in a tent in Jerusalem because that's the place that David had put it in. And finally at that point in time at the end of 2 Samuel chapter 6, tada. Now the king is rightly enthroned and the house of God, the ark of the covenant is now together in Jerusalem, making Jerusalem not just a political administrative center, but the religious center of all of Israel. So David was at the pinnacle of everything. He had cemented his leadership. He had united the tribes. He had fought back all the enemies. And that's why in this verse, the king is now settled in his palace. Now, the NIV reading says palace. But if you look at the NRSV or the ESV or certain other translations, you would say after the king was settled in his house, the Hebrew term for that—that's uh, being translated as palace, house, uh, room—is uh, bayit, uh, teta. Uh, b-y-t, But it means b-a-y-i-t. Fifteen times in this short passage, the term house is mentioned, and that's a very crucial uh, point about this particular. Passage It's talking about the house of God, the house of David, and it highlights this particular point. These passages from verse 1 to 17 discuss the Jerusalem sanctuary. Now, uh, you notice it's underlined, so for our friends who are visiting, there's actually a sermon outline inserted in the bulletin to fill in the blanks. I do this because some people say they might fall asleep but you can you can fill it in so it talks about the jerusalem sanctuary and the davidic monarchy the davidic monarchy these are two institutions which were vital to the people of israel now why are they important to us they're important to us because many wars have been fought in jerusalem over the temple you know they want to rebuild the temple They want to re-establish the monarchy, the the line of David. And so, you know, even in Malaysia, some people say, you know, I'm I'm a Jew. I'm more a Jew than I am a Christian. uh, And and we must go to Jerusalem and do this visit. You know, it's very sacred and so forth. Um, I need you to understand what has happened from a biblical theological uh, point, from a physical house what has that house and temple been transformed into and how does that inform us about the way we should view jerusalem the temple the line of david okay so this is a, a rather pa- important passage in the old testament so after the end of that first two verses uh, he tells this to nathan Nathan is the prophet in session at that time, and so Nathan said to the king, go do all that is in your heart, for the Lord is with you. This term, for the Lord is with you, is a recurring term in this whole point about the kings. And in particular for David, the Lord is with you. New Testament Christians, right, when we say the Lord is with you, it means Emmanuel. God is with you. God is with us. So go do all that is in your heart, for the Lord is with you. Now, uh, you have your Bibles. Go read it. Uh, That night, the word of the Lord uh, came uh, to Nathan saying, go tell my servant David. This is what the Lord says. Are you the one to build me a house to dwell in? So what I'd like you to to just listen out to is, is this term, house. Are you the one to build me a house to dwell in? I have not dwelt in a house from the day I brought the Israelites up out of Egypt to this day. I have been moving from place to place with a tent as my dwelling house. Okay, Wherever I have moved with all the Israelites, did I ever say to any of the rulers whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, why have you not built me a bayit house of seder? Seder was like the, uh, you know, the the top kind of quality stuff that you can have at that time and for those who, who understand a bit of the geography um, david had con- uh, had conquered lebanon as part of that and they were famous for their seders and so now he has the conquest of war he can use it to to do the house now then tell my servant david verse 8 this is what the lord almighty says i took you from the pasture and from following the flock to be ruler over people of Israel. I've been with you wherever you've gone and have cut off all your enemies from before you. Now, I will make your name great like the names of the greatest men of the earth. Wow, that's a huge promise. Shepherd boy, the one who was kind of like left out until the prophet Samuel had to ask, is there no other son in your family? And he says, yes, there's one more. He's busy taking care of the sheep. You know, he was the least amongst the brothers because you always send out the most, you know, hopeless one to go and jaga sheep. <laughs> he says, bring that guy and anoint him. Let me point out to you, the point where Samuel anointed David and says, you are now king, is the point when God had told David, you are king not that you will be king you are king david you shepherd boy and from that time till the time now where david is in the palace and is finally acknowledged as king close to 30 40 years have gone now imagine god tells you hey you are a son of god you are a child of the kingdom a ruler And an inheritance given to you, the kingdoms that have been prepared for you since the beginning of time. He says that now, he doesn't say when that happens, he says now. But that's something that's certain in the future. David has to plow through these things. Verse 10. I will appoint a place for my people Israel and plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly. Now this is a promise that's given to David, but it is never really ever fulfilled. Because after David comes Solomon, David himself has a lot of internal strife with Absalom and his children raping one another, his uh, adultery with Bathsheba, all these issues he had. Solomon comes in and before his reign is even over, Israel is divided. And then comes a series of good kings, bad kings, good king, bad king, and outside influence. So really, they never really have this peace, proper, full peace. So what is going on there? 2 Samuel, verse 13. Chapter 7, verse 13. Let me read that. He is the one who will build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. So we have here this situation where God tells David, you won't be able to build this. There are two other passages which tell us why David could not do this. One, you find in Chronicles. Chronicles says that he was a man of blood. He had conducted too many wars and was a man of violence, so God had said, because you have shed too much blood, you cannot build this house. But another uh, chronicle that is given is also saying that David was unable to do this because he was too busy. He was busy fighting wars and dealing with all this internal strife No time to prepare, but he prepared the materials for Solomon so that when Solomon would do it, he had the materials in place. But here's the thing. Solomon, although he's the son of David, is not really the one that is in God's mind. David's son, as the promise in verse 13 says, will build the temple and the dynasty will last forever will last forever now what what, you imagine a situation where somebody comes to you and tells you this promise you will build this house the house of god where god will be at and i need to remind you again culturally for the jew if you ask them where is god they will point to the (coughs) tabernacle the temple the title is the Lord, the God Almighty who is enthroned in the midst of his people who sits in between the cherubim. That's the long name title of the ark. That's where he'll be. And so God gives this promise to David who wanted to build a house for God. He says, your son will build the temple. The dynasty will last forever. Finally, in 2 Samuel 7, verse 16, it says, Your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. In the period of 526 BC, Israel was overrun. Their thrones destroyed and the temple also destroyed. And so what of this promise? How then will it be to this people... When they consider this, there are two ways to interpret this. One way is when you look at what Nathan is told to tell David. The Lord God never asked David to build him a house. Nonetheless, Solomon decided to go and do it. And when Solomon built the house, you will read later on, Solomon built the house of God. It was wonderful, it was beautiful. And then he built his palace, which was two times the size and three times the cost. That's what Solomon did. I'd like you to think a little bit about this because it's important how we view the church, how we view the temple. What is the temple? When you strip it down for all its basic bare minimum, the temple or the house of God is a house of prayer for the nations. It is a house where people meet God. So, wherever God is, that is where the house of God is. Do you only meet God when you come to church? And the answer should be no. Because the Lord your God inhabits all of his creation, he is everywhere. Even when you ask the Jew, where is God? they will say, okay, he's in the temple. Where in the temple? He's at the Ark of the Tabernacle. Where in the Ark of the Tabernacle? Uh, He's between the cherubim. Where between the cherubim? You see that empty space where there's nothing? Nothing. That's where God is. He is the God who is unrepresented, who inhabits the entire earth, but can, you know, can occupy a single space. But He is nonetheless not contained What David was trying to do was to cement his power by saying, God, let me build you this house. You now stay here. You my good friend. Anytime I pray to you and all that, you just answer my prayer. And God was telling him, no can do. You cannot contain me. Never have I ever asked these people to build a house for me. Thank you for the thought. (laughs) But no. And instead, God says, I will build a house your house, your kingdom shall be made sure forever. He unites his two things, the house of God, the house of David, and the monarchy. Brings it all together in this one understanding. And in 716, God establishes an everlasting covenant, an everlasting promise. The same promise that He made to you. This everlasting promise. Repent, believe. Believe enter into the kingdom of heaven, everlasting. You are called children of God, promise given now, and is true now, but you may only realise it a lot later. What does this mean for us in this time and this period? In the New Testament, Jesus, in John chapter 2, verse 17, uh, says this, he has gone into the temple and he tears everything and he scourges the temple and he says, zeal for your house will consume me, your house. The Jews then responded to me, what sign can you show us to tell us what authority you have to do all this? And he said, I will destroy this temple, raise it again in three days. He wasn't referring to the physical temple, he was referring to his own body. He says this again. We see this in Mark chapter 14. Some stood up, gave false testimony when they were accusing Jesus before Pilate. We heard him say, I will destroy this temple made with human hands and in three days, I will build another not made with human hands. And he did. (laughs) Because Christ is the new temple. When we are in Christ, we encounter God. Where God is, that is where the temple is. But that doesn't end here. We are then reminded that in one Corinthians six verse nineteen, Paul tells us, "Do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit? Your bodies, individually and plurally." So, my dear friends, when you think of the church, when you think of the temple, when you think of the house of God, you are a living, walking church. You are the church. So, when people say, "Ah, the church terrible," You please point back, uh, church terrible. (laughs) You are part of the church because Christ dwells in you, the Spirit dwells in you, and they all dwell in God, the Father. Therefore, honour God with everything that you are, where you do. I say this because many times uh, people come to the church, suddenly they got new mask on. (laughs) Oh, in church must be holy. In church, we cannot do this. But after this, let's go to the pub and get, you know, get ourselves a little bit drunk, and let's go and find some women and whistle at them or something. You cannot have that dissonance. You are the temple of God. You are the body of Christ. Now, let me try and put this into some application points. When you think of establishing your house, your family, your children, and your children's children, what would you put into building it that is strong and lasting? Jesus gave this parable, you know, in the end of Matthew chapter 7. If anyone wants to be a wise man, let him, when he builds a house, build his house on foundation, on solid rock. David had to build a house on solid rock. And when I mean this, he means that he didn't become king just because, like that, you know, snap of a hand. He struggled. He doubted himself. He had to fight many battles. He had to be denied, and God told him no. Many times he was told no. He tells Nathan, Nathan the prophet, and bear in mind, Nathan said, "Good job," then within seventeen verses said, "Cannot do." So you might tell the pastor, "Pastor, I want to do this for the church," and all that, and the pastor said, "Oh, good lah, go do it. God is with you." And then after that, you get a vision, and you find that no, actually God doesn't want you to do that. Are you gonna be upset? I want to do this. I'm well-meaning. I, I plan to do this. But then God halts you in your steps and says, that is not how I want you to do this. Saul faced the same problem and Saul rebelled. He did what he wanted. We all are faced with the same question. You're busy wanting to establish your house, your kingdom, and you think, oh God, surely you would be pleased if I did this. No. Only one thing and one thing is required of you that you dwell in the presence of the Lord and you do only what He asks you to do, not what He thinks He wants you to do. Do you focus on the material or spiritual when you're building up your house, your children? It is harder to try and train your child in the way of the Lord than it is to let them do what they want. It is harder to discipline your child to sit at the dinner table than to surrender the phone to them and say, what's your favourite show? Much harder. But how will we teach our children to defer their gratification in the same way David had to learn, I have to defer what I think is rightfully mine. What is the attitude you take in responding to God's rejection of your well-intentioned needs? Or wishes, How will you respond? David was well-intentioned. David had many things and David may have said to his, himself, you know, I'm, I'm king, you know. Saul is a usurper. He has been dethroned. Let me just kill him and I will be king because God says you will be king. Nowhere, he had many opportunities to kill Saul and he says, no, never. Let it be known for me. How will you be faithful When things come before you that you want and you think is good, but God says, not that way, will you listen to Him? Sometimes for some people it means saying no to a wonderful job offer. For some people it may mean not travelling overseas and just being staying put, taking care of elderly parents or doing what God has called you to do but for some people it may mean uprooting themselves and going far away because God tells them go. All these are difficult. They're not easy questions. Lastly, your body, singular and plural means mine and all of us are the temple of God. What does it mean for you to be adopted as God's children and have God abide with you? The Lord is with you Emmanuel, how will you live this life as the body in the temple, always being aware that the Lord is present with you? Let us pray.